you mentioned emergency savings fund. How many of these funds should we have? <laughs> yeah. What should be our goal? So for your emergency savings fund, I always say it should be three to six months of your expenses. So we want three should be our first goal because we don't want to add debt to our financial landscape, right? We want to make sure that we're able to stay afloat. We don't want to be underwater. And so, like I mentioned, all my things in my house are clogged up. I have a house sinking fund. So if something happens, mm -hmm. I pull money from that fund to fix something in the house. But that also means I have to put that in my budget. So we're going back to the budget, that byline where it's like, okay, every month I'm adding in $80 into this fund and I'm not gonna touch it unless it's for its intended use. Now for emergency savings fund, if we're just getting started, that could just be your big blanket. So mine is like a little more intricate because I'm like, I have a fund for my dog. I have a fund for oh. my house. Yeah, she's old. So I'm like, let me just, <laughs> in oh, case you Oh, you're so sweet. I have to, thank you. Yeah. So it's like, I have a fund for my car, but it's like, if we're just getting started, I'll just label emergency savings and you're going to put, okay, every month I spend $2,000. So my emergency saving to be 6,000. So that's going to be my goal. Wow. So, and again, it's like, well, I don't have $6,000. It doesn't, you don't have to have 6,000 to put into it immediately. It could say, okay, I'm going to fund my emergency savings over the next 12 months, over the next 18 months, over the next 24 months, whatever it is, but I'm going to keep adding this consistent amount into this particular account every, and I'm not going to take it out unless I have an emergency. And people oftentimes feel ashamed, like, well, I had to use my emergency savings. If you use it for emergency, that was the point. Right. You did what you set out to do, and that is the goal, right? right? So don't feel shame when you have to tap into it. It's there because now you don't have to go swipe and add to your, you know, to your debt. So I'm a big, big, big supporter of emergency savings funds, but I'm also very, you know, realistic. The economy is tough. It doesn't mean you have to fund it immediately, but you want to at least have a plan in motion to get it funded. And it, when you say a fund, is that an account? Like just yeah, going to I the bank? A, yeah. So okay. Dan, going to the just bank to the is bank 2024. <laughs> um, yeah. So I just open up an account. So there are a lot of different banks that you can have like buckets. Essentially, Well, one bank does literally call it a bucket. So you can title it. So you can say emergency savings oh, fund. Got it. And then I'm like, okay. So then now every time my check comes in, I'm going to send $40 into this particular bucket. And totally that's what, yeah. So I call them a fund, but you could call them like a bucket, a little whatever. I call them sinking funds because I'm like, when the ship is sinking, I love that. I have something to like help me stay afloat. So. I love that. So what is the difference between stocks and bonds? Yes. So when you think of bonds, you want to think about it as an IOU. So you're giving mm -hmm. the government money and there's different types of bonds, right? So there's municipal bonds where it's like, I'm going to buy a municipal bond. The government's going to use that money to build a park in New York City or to fix roads or whatever it is. And I'm going to lend them that money for whatever the term of the bond is, 10 years, 15 mm -hmm. years, 20 years. And they're going to give me a set percentage of interest. So when I sign it, I'm like, okay, I'm giving you $100. You're going to give me 10% interest on this $100. And then you're going to give me that money back in 30 years. I bring back my bond. They give me my money with the interest. So it's like an IOU. So mm -hmm. it's a little safer, right? When people say, oh, like when you get older, you invest in bonds. That's why. Because if I'm investing in bonds, I have much more of a guarantee that mm -hmm. I'm going to get this specific amount of money back. As opposed to if I'm investing in stocks, there's a lot more movement in what a, a company's worth or company is valued at over that time. So when you're younger, they say invest more risk, so put more money in stocks. And when you get older, you wanna shift that into more bonds. Interesting. Yes. Financial expert, author, 
teacher to tech and co-founder of Millennial in Debt, which is all of us. Yeah, that's me. So what exactly is a financial expert and what does that entail for you? So I tend to call myself a financial educator, especially mm-hmm. with my education background. And so I take really complicated financial you know, topics, investing and retirement and things like that. And I break it down just like I would do in the classroom. I break it down so that every person, every millennial, every Gen Zer can have access to this information and take action, right? So Mm -hmm. that's really the important thing of being an expert in your field is motivating and teaching people to take action so that they can be on the path to financial freedom and generational wealth. So it's not just buzzwords, but it's just like, well, what can I teach you today that's going to help you do this thing tomorrow and Mm -hmm. teach someone else the same thing? Tell me about when you co-founded Millennial in Debt, what is that? So Millennial in Debt is an educational platform. We focus on finance and career development because I want everyone to get to the bag, right? <laughs> I want us all to be future millionaires is what I talk to, you know, say on the internet. And so in 2017, I was depressed. I had so many student loans and I was really confused about how people were living. I was like, how is everyone going to Thailand? How is everyone, you know, buying this and doing that? And I started asking questions. I started talking to my friends and family about that really taboo thing about money and about debt. Right. And I found out that it was a lot of smoke and mirrors and I was not the only one who was struggling and really couldn't afford to go to brunch every weekend and couldn't afford all these fancy trips. And so I decided to write everyone's stories down Mm -hmm. in a really funny, entertaining, educational way. And I labeled it millennial in debt because we were all millennials at the time, really just trying to figure this out. And so I created a web series with each episode being a specific topic, right? So how to get a job when you have no experience, because that is essentially what happened at 22, 23. They're like, yeah, do you have seven years of experience? I'm like, I just graduated. I don't, I don't know. Right. right? And this is when you were becoming a teacher. So I was already a teacher, but I was trying to figure out like, how is everyone doing this? Right. Yeah. And I, I can't, like, it's just such a big struggle. And yeah. I think my biggest moment was when I tried to go buy a house and I didn't even have a savings account. I didn't even know the, the process. I was just like, well, I'm old enough. I have a job. <laughs> I need to get out of my parents' house. Buying a house is the next step, right? And they're like, girl, no, you, you can't buy a house. And definitely not in New York. So it was really just a culmination of my confusion and wanting to understand how everyone else was doing it. And then just kind of broadcasting out the information like, oh, we all of us don't know what we're doing, but let me show you how to get better at this. Wow. Okay. So before we start talking about finances and yeah. you sharing all of these gems, I, I do want to ask about you being a teacher. Yes. Okay, so what were you teaching and what made you want to become a teacher? So I actually wanted to be a psychologist. When I left high school, I was like, I'm going to be a psychologist. I was a psychology major and it was the most boring. (laughs) I was so, I had a professor who really sounded like the dry eyes commercial. And I was just like, I don't think this is for me, but I really loved writing. And so I went to my advisor at the time. I was like, I'm going to be an English major. major. I'm going to be in journalism. She's like, you're going to be broke. Straight up. She's like, you're not. She's like, you need to add something else to this because if you just major in English, you're not really going to go far. And she recommended teaching, which (laughs) teachers don't make a lot more money. I was going (laughs) to say, interesting advice. I think she was trying to push me into security. Definitely not like financial growth. Um, So I became an English major and an education minor. And so I went into this program. I was like, okay, I guess I'm going to just be an English teacher. That's what they're teaching me how to do. And so I graduated, got a job right out of college being an educator. And I just started teaching high school uh, English for 11 years. That was like my thing. I'm like, I'm going to teach. I'm going to teach. I'm going to teach. And then I'm like, 
I think I want to do something different. Right. I think I want to figure something else out. But I really loved the journey of being an educator educator because it really helped me create my brand and helped me create everything. Oh, yeah. So being a teacher was definitely a great choice for me. It just wasn't where I thought I was going to start. Yeah, for sure. And so when did that transition of no longer being a teacher and really just exploring the world of finances, when did that moment happen for you? So it was once I wrote this web series and I put it out on YouTube, right? We all start on YouTube and people started asking a lot of questions in the comments. Got it. So I was just like, oh, I really should have a place where people can go like read about this, right? More than what's in the video. And so I created an Instagram on a whim. I was like, oh, this name is available, Millennial in Debt, because I actually really started my YouTube because I wanted to do hair and makeup and things like that. So I put up this web series. I didn't even think people would care because that wasn't my usual, what I was uploading. So I created Millennial in Debt on Instagram. Wow. I bought the domain on WordPress and I was just like, we're, I guess we're gonna see what happens. <laughs> But people kept asking so many questions and I really took what I was doing in the classroom and how I was lesson planning and unit planning and created essentially lesson plans and unit plans for my content on how I would teach about a Roth IRA or how I would teach about a 401k or and things like that. So it really was just like, I guess a lesson plan for, you know, this Macbeth and then a lesson plan for Roth IRAs at the same time and just developed into that. And once I really got a grasp on all of the financial things that I was teaching, I really had the urge to pivot out. I wanted to move into my zone of genius is what, mm -hmm. I, I, what I call it. So I was good at teaching. Of, of course, I was really great at English. I loved English, but my zone of genius really pulled me into financial literacy. And I just feel like hearing that, it all makes sense because mm -hmm. you're a teacher. So it's easy when you share this information, it's digestible, it makes sense. Yeah. And we actually learn versus like, I'm sure you're used to, hearing people talk about how finances and understanding financial education is very daunting. Yeah. Overwhelming. We don't even know where to start. Right. All the time. I mean, Katrina, <laughs> I have no idea where to start. Like checking <laughs> savings accounts, who knows? Like there's such a base that you can start at. Did you realize when you were teaching high school that there was some things that you could actually teach the high schoolers while you were there? Yes. So my last two years of teaching high school, I was put into the advanced placement program. And so AP English goes from September to about May. So from May to June, you have to kind of figure out what you're going to teach them for the last month of, of high school. Mm -hmm. And if you're a high school senior, you know that that last month you don't want to do anything. So I was just like, hey, how about I teach you about money? Like, Ooh, how about I teach my. you how to manage your money and how to become wealthy the right way and really figure out a long-term game plan? And they were tapped in. So I was teaching them like, hey, you can open a Roth IRA right now. A lot of them had part-time jobs. They did not know that. They're like, but I'm not 18. I'm like, you don't need to be 18 to open up a Roth IRA. Your parents can open up a Roth IRA for you when you're five years old, when you're three years old. As long as you have income, that income can be invested into this Roth IRA. And Roth IRA builds millionaires. I talk about this all the time. It's the slow, consistent investing. And if you start at 16, 17, throwing in $100 here, $200 there, by the time you're 50, 55, 60, you have a nice nest egg where you don't have to worry, oh, you know, I don't have enough to retire or I'm going to have to work until I'm 90 years old. Nobody wants that, right? right? So teaching it to them at 17 and really having their eyes open to 
I have control over my financial freedom now. I don't have to wait until I have my grown-up job, my adult job. I can start now. They were so excited. And I got every single one of them to, at the bare minimum, some of them are like, I don't know about the Roth, to open up a high-yield savings account. So that is the first step. I always tell, open up that high-yield savings account because that is one of the easiest forms of passive income where you're just getting interest off the money you're already saving. So what is that? So there's a high yield saving and there's traditional saving. So traditional saving is going to be at your traditional brick and mortar banks that we're all grown up with, accustomed to, right? So you have like your debit card and your savings attached to that. But when you open up a high yield savings, most of the time now it's going to be a digital bank, right? So it's not going to be somewhere you can pop in, but because they don't have to have that overhead, they can pay you a little more. So right now, most high yield savings are paying between four and 5% interest. Your traditional banks are paying less than 1%, not even close to 1% interest. So how can they do that? So because they don't have the overhead of having to have people work, you know, in office, having to have all of these things so they can pay a little bit more. And so as we know, the feds have been raising the interest rates. That's why everything's so high. So high yield savings really benefit when the the rates are up. So when the rates are down, our high yield savings will drop a bit, but it's still always going to be more than a traditional savings account. So I recommend everyone listening, and that's our first step (laughs) to open up a high yield savings account and just start invest and start saving there. Okay. So I have another question about yeah. that. I think why I've always been hesitant is because it is digital. Yeah. And I don't know if other people have hesitations like that. Like where are, where's your establishment? So I always, always, always say whenever you're doing a financial institution, especially if it's a bank or doing your banking, it needs to be FDIC insured. So if you are FDIC insured, you know that at least $250,000, and some banks are now offering higher uh, maximums, but at least $250,000 is going to be protected. So if that bank goes under, whatever happens, your money is safe. Your money is insured. So there are a ton of banks that are digital where it's like, I don't know. If you see that FDIC insured little Mm -hmm. button logo, then you know that your money is good. So there are banks that aren't FDIC insured? The little scammy ones that we don't talk about and promote. But yes, they'll try to get by like, oh, we have this or we have, are we affiliated with this? And it's like, but you're not, you're not FDIC insured. I'm not putting my money in there. And they'll offer you the world, right? Right, Because it's just like, yeah, why not, you know, put your money here? We're going to give you 10% interest. And then the bank goes belly up and my money, my life savings is gone, right? So always go for the FDIC insured bank. What would you say is your best piece of financial advice? Like if there was one that, you know, is important and you want people to take away, what would it be? Start today. I think a lot of times Mm. people like to wait. They try to time and see, well, I'll wait till the rates go up or I'll wait till this happens. Or when I learn this, I want to be an expert. I want to make sure I really understand it. You want to get your feet wet. You really want to start. And of course, we'll make little mistakes here and there. But if you don't put your your money into the savings, it's never going to grow. If you don't put your money into your 401k, you're never going to grow your retirement, right? You really want to start where you are. And as you're learning, you can evolve your your strategy, whatever is Mm -hmm. fine, but you have to start, right? So I always say the best day to start investing is today. Wow. Okay. Today. All right. You hear that, Katrina? Yeah. But I mean, what if you don't have a lot of 
money to start with for investing. I love, I love when people say that you can start now with $10. Mm -hmm. You can start with $5. It's a much different game than 10 years ago, than 15 years ago, where a lot of times you would have to go in and into a stockbroker and mm -hmm. all these things. Now things are digital. You don't have to do that. There are also no more commission fees. I remember when I first started investing and I, I was like, oh, I'm going to buy the companies I like. I'm going to, I oh, I buy this clothes. I'm going to buy here. But every time I'd invest, they would take a commission off of that. So I would be putting money into this this stock and then the brokerage I was, I was with would take money from that. They don't even do that anymore, right? So now you can start off with $10, $5, and now we have something called fractional shares, right? So whereas before, if I wanted to buy stock in this company and it was $100 and I don't have $100, I couldn't buy it, right? So that was really preventing people from having access. But now a lot of these brokerages have fractional shares, so I could put $10 in. So I can say, okay, I may not have one whole share, but I have a piece of this company now. And then when I have another 10 or another 20, I can build in. It's really building that habit, building that routine, building that muscle of investing without having to have thousands of dollars to start off with. So I really like the financial landscape we're in now, mm -hmm. not the economy because everything's expansive, <laughs> but where it's more accessible for people to start where they are. I think investing is such a daunting, you know, idea of yeah. what to get into. And for me, and a lot of people I know, when you invest, what happens then? Like, okay, so you put your share, you put your money in toward a share, right? Yep. You see that money going up. Can you take that money out? Wait, Does it stay there? I was going to say, peel back even more. Yeah. Where do we go to invest, right? Because we hear about, oh, you can go with a financial advisor or you could download an app and do it right. yourself, which sounds... Yeah, exhausting. I, I can't go straight to the stock market and hand them yeah, $10. Like how, <laughs> how does this work? Like, like yeah. take us step by step so that we know how to start. Yes. So the first step is you're going to go to a reputable brokerage. And so I always talk about, you really want to look at the history of the brokerage because there are ones that pop up and there are ones that are like fancy fun apps, but it almost feels like gambling. And I don't like to gamble with my no. money. Right. Nope. So I always say investing and gambling are not synonymous, right? right. There's risk in investing, but I'm I'm really looking at the the history of so I always talk about the S and P 500, right? So the S and P 500 has been around for 100 years. So I'm gonna look at this this you know index fund and I'm gonna say okay I'm gonna look at the historical performance as opposed to oh this is like trending on TikTok I'm gonna download this app and put my money into it I'm not gonna do that right and so the first step is open at a reputable brokerage then after you do that after you do that you're gonna want to go into a low cost index fund. Write this down, low, cost, low cost, cost index fund. fund. So I'm going to okay. explain what an index fund is, and we're going to use food because we were talking okay. about food earlier, yes. right? Mm. So when you buy a share in a company, you want to think of that buying a slice, right? A slice mm -hmm. of pizza. So I'm buying one slice. The whole pizza is the company. When I am buying an index fund, a low cost index fund, I am buying a large pie of multiple different companies, right? Mm. So instead of just saying, I'm going to buy this one cheese, I'm trying not to name a specific company. I'm going to buy this one cheese slice. I can buy a low cost index fund and it's going to give me a cheese slice, a, a margarita slice. It's going to be all these different things. So now I'm diversified. So now I have less risk because I'm not putting all my money in one company. I'm putting all my money in a bunch of companies that are performing well. So the S&P 500 tracks the top 500 companies in the country. So that is going to give me a lot more, you know, breathing space where I'm like, okay, I don't need to panic because if 500 companies, the top 500 companies all crash, then we have a much different problem, right? right. So it's like, I feel much safer putting my money into this, this index fund that's tracking 
500 companies as opposed to putting my money into one company that might have a bad year, that might have a bad decade, and now I'm just losing money. And so traditionally, over the last 100 years, the S&P 500 has returned an average of 10%, right? So that doesn't mean every year it returns 10%, but on average, if I start investing at 20 and I'm gonna retire at 65, if I keep putting money in the S&P 500, I am going to have, you know, I, my money's going to grow. And so that's what we always talk about. That's where you wanna start. So you open up the brokerage, you put in $100, $50, $10 in a low cost index fund that tracks the S&P 500. Another thing you could do is a whole market index fund that tracks all of these stocks, all of the companies in the entire country. So it's like, again, there's 3,500 companies on the market. It is unlikely that 3,500 companies are all going to fail, right? So there's risk, but less risk. Mm. And then you don't touch that until you're 50, 60. The point of it is to put it in and let it grow yes. until you're ready to retire. Correct, correct, yes. And with when you start early, you can retire earlier. So I say you're buying back your time, right? So I reached Coast Fire, which we can talk about. Yeah. I reached Coast Fire at 32 years old, which means- What is that? So Coast Fire means that I no longer have to invest. And by the time, I'm going to still invest, but by the time I reach my traditional retirement age of 65, I will have my financial independence number. So I will have- $1.7 million in my portfolio. I keep going because I don't want to retire at 65. I want to retire at 45. So I keep investing because now I'm buying back my time so that I don't have to work till 65. I love this. Mm. Congratulations. Thank you so much. That sounds amazing. Thank you. Thank you. So what is the difference between stocks and bonds? Yes. So when you think of bonds, you want to think about it as an IOU. So you're giving mm -hmm. the government money and there's different types of bonds, right? So there's municipal bonds where it's like, I'm going to buy a municipal bond. The government's going to use that money to build a park in New York City or to fix roads or whatever it is. And I'm going to lend them that money for whatever the term of the bond is, 10 years, 15 mm -hmm. years, 20 years. Years, and they're going to give me a set percentage of interest. So when I sign it, I'm like, okay, I'm giving you $100. You're going to give me 10% interest on this $100. And then you're going to give me that money back in 30 years. I bring back my bond. They give me my money with the interest. So it's like an IOU. So mm -hmm. it's a little safer, right? When people say, oh, like when you get older, you invest in bonds. That's why. Because if I'm investing in bonds, I have much more of a guarantee that I'm mm. going to get this specific amount of money back. As opposed to if I'm investing in stocks, there's a lot more movement in what a, a company's worth or company is valued at over that time. So when you're younger, they say invest more risk. So put more money in stocks. And when you get older, you want to shift that into more bonds. Interesting. Yes. Wow. Okay. So what would you say are some of your top tips when it comes to budgeting? We are horrible <laughs> at budgeting. Terrible. So the thing with the budget that a lot of people, you know, misconstrue is that it has to be constrictive, right? So like I have this budget and I have to follow it. I can't do anything else. But the thing is your budget has to evolve with your financial landscape. I follow a zero-based budget now. But when I was 25, I was following a 50, 30, 20 budget. So I wasn't really thinking about too much investing. So I was investing in my 403B and I was like, okay, that's fine. But I really wanted to pay down debt. 
So with the 50-30-20 budget, 50% of my money was going towards my needs. So I was like, okay, I have to pay this student loans. I have to pay my car. I have to do all of these things. 30% goes towards your wants and then 20% goes towards saving. But for me, I'm like, I'm going to put that extra 20% towards paying down these student loans. But now I have home, I have this, I have all these different things. So I needed to change my budget to really focus on, okay, well now I have to have a house fund in case like my roof caves in, I have a pet, I have right. to do these things. So the zero-based budget allows me to give every single dollar in my budget a job that at 25, I didn't need to think about or care about. So what's really important when you're budgeting is you want to sit down on a money date is what I call them. Take yourself on a money date, put all your numbers in front of you and really ask yourself, well, what do I need in this budget? Am I trying to pay down debt? Am I trying to save to buy a home? Am I trying to save to buy a car? What does my budget need to do for me in order for it to feel good or in order for me to be successful at it? Mm -hmm. I don't need to follow a budget that my favorite influencer is doing because we have very different lives. We're not focused on the same thing. And so when you try to box yourself into a specific budget because it looks cool or you think it might work, you're going to hate budgeting. And you're not going to be good at it because it doesn't work for you. So you really want to sit down. I say go month by month. If you try this budget this month and you're like, okay, I really like this. I'll try it again next month. Okay, this really worked for me. Or you're like, this, I hate this budget. It did not work. It made me feel like I couldn't spend. I couldn't do this. Switch the budget. Try something different. Try something else that you can work with your numbers and really align with, okay, this month I'm going to focus on paying off my credit card or I'm going to focus on paying these student loans. So mm -hmm. always flow with what your life needs when you're trying to budget. If someone has multiple loans, what would you say is the best approach to paying them off? There's a lot of conversation around this. So my approach, what I took to pay off my loans, I did the debt avalanche method. And debt avalanche method. Yes. What is that? So I had student loans that had 14 to 16% interest, which is Ooh. extremely high. Whoa. <laughs> yes. I had private student loans on variable interest rates that started at 7% didn't stay at seven. And so I really focused in on paying off the loans that had the highest interest and not the highest balance because they were going to cost oh. me most in the long run anyway. Um, another way that people really enjoy paying off debt is the snowball method mm -hmm. where they're taking the lowest balance because you want a quick win. So you start off with the lowest balance, you pay down the extra to get that balance done. And then once that debt is over, once you've, you've finished it, you're going to take whatever you were throwing at it and go to your next lowest amount. So it's different methods, different routes, but I particularly don't like interest at all. I hate paying extra mm -hmm. on everything. Um, so I always suggest trying the debt avalanche method. But if you know you need the the mental win, the emotional win of like, right. I just want to pay this, I just want to get this debt done because it's my smallest that would be the one that I would suggest to follow. What was the major turning point in your life where you realized, oh, I got to get a hold of my finances? Yeah. So at 25 years old, living in New York, I decided to try to buy a house. Foolishly. I did not have a savings account. I didn't have anything. And so I went to a realtor and he was like, Okay. And he still tried to, cause they're going to try to get the money. He still tried to get a mortgage. <laughs> I was like, I don't have anything saved. But then when he ran the numbers, he was like, oh, you're not going to get approved for a mortgage because you have a really high debt to income ratio. Which means. Yeah. I didn't know what it meant either. I was like, you're, what language are you speaking? Yeah. Right. <laughs> and so essentially what it meant is although I was paying all my bills, I never missed a payment on anything. 
my income could not be spread into another debt. Essentially, I was a liability to the bank. They were like, you have too much debt because you don't make enough money to cover the debt you already have and a new loan. And I'm like, that doesn't make sense. I pay all my loans. He's like, you should speak to your loan provider. So I'm like, okay. So I call my student loan provider and the balance I had borrowed 50,000 for school was now $80,000, even though I never missed a payment. And so I obviously started crying and I'm just like, (laughs) Um, I'm trying to buy a house. I don't know why my balance. I only borrowed 50. There must be a mistake. And she's like, oh, well, you're on an interest only payment plan. What is an interest only payment? plan? Yes. So my interest only payment plan was $200. I was on a teacher salary. So I was like, that makes sense. But they were adding an additional like $400 a month in interest. So my monthly payment was not covering the interest that was being added back in. So I'm just like, so I'm giving y'all just free money. Like, what is ha- what's happening here? What's this transaction we're going through? And she's just like, well, you can go on a standard payment, which was $1,100 a month. And again, teacher salary. I'm like, I, I can't give you $1,100 a month. Um, so she's like, well, you can stay on this and you'll be, all, you'll be done in 30 years. 30 years? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I told you I was crying. I was like, I can't do this. Um, so I eventually switched into a graduated repayment plan which essentially kept it at $200 because I'm like, I, let me just mentally prepare that I'm going to have to pay these off. And then every two years, the payment would increase, but I would at least be able to prepare my money and like, okay, I'm going to side hustle. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that in order to pay off this particular loan before it increases in that uh. next year. But it was, it was a time that, that really ha- made me realize like one, I tried to buy a house with no savings. I don't know where, <laughs> what my brain was thinking there. Um, and that I really needed to get rid of these loans in order to start living my life. I could not, you know, move out. I couldn't do things that I really wanted to do because I just had no idea or concept of how to use money as a tool. It was just work, spend the money, work, make yes. more money, spend the money. And it's like that. Yes. No, no. You, you could do other things with your money. And so that was the real turning point when I just could not buy a house with, with no money. Imagine that. Right? <laughs> Imagine so that. <laughs> and the student loan that you repaid was like $102,000, yes, right? Yes. That's when, a big loan. Yeah. Especially when you... Didn't borrow 100000 right? <laughs> right? So my final payment was uh, December 2018, and the total came up to $102,000. And I was so happy to be done, but when I really sat down and looked at the numbers, it's just like, I paid double what I borrowed. Yeah. I, because I just didn't know or understand what you know I was signing up for or what these payment terms meant or what my promissory note really was saying. Mm-hmm. I didn't even know that while I was in college, I was being charged interest. Because I had unsubsidized loans. I'm like, what language are we speaking here? Right. What do, I don't understand. So this is why it was so important to really incorporate edu- education mm-hmm, into the mm-hmm. financial conversation. Because it's, there's terms and things happening to us that we don't understand. But we're signing up for these things. Because it's like, I need to go to school. I need mm-hmm. to finish this degree. I don't care. I Just give me this money. Uh, now that you know all of this information, what would you have done different when it came to student loans? I absolutely, because I, I first generation, my parents didn't have the money. I needed the loans, like I had to take them, but I absolutely would have started paying the loans off while in school. I didn't mm. even know I could do that. I didn't know that I could make payments and that it would help decrease how much interest was being added in the balance. I was just like, I'm going to use my money. I'm going to buy sneakers. I'm going to look cute. I'm going to go out. And I had all this discretionary income. But had I known, I really would have tried to focus in on paying some of that off. From the point you started paying 
to the point you finished in December 2018. Yes. How long was that? So I started paying in November of 2010 because that's when my grace period ended mm -hmm. um, and finished December 2018. So eight years it took me not to bad. really, it's not bad like on the grand scheme of they wanted right. me to take 30 years and they yeah. probably would have taken well over $300,000 for me if I took that 30 years. Um, but it's just like, I wish I had known from the beginning because I would have had a plan and maybe been able to pay it off sooner or at least been more strategic in how I use my money in my early 20s. So you know, it's, it's a lesson I had to learn. And I'm so glad that I learned it. I just wish that, you know, others didn't have to go through it. Like I'm, I'm so for student loan forgiveness because it's, it's, it's ridiculous. Absolutely. It is ridiculous. It is so predatory. And it's just, let's just give everyone a fresh start. Yes. Let's, you know, we, we know better now. Let's just start over. I, and, I didn't realize that some people felt away because, oh, they repaid their loan. Mm -hmm. They feel like others need to repay it. And for you, you're just like, what? No. <laughs> Yeah, I don't understand that mentality of just like, well, me, 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 me. It's right. like, well, if it's for the betterment of all of us right. and the country wins by doing that, what's the problem? I hear a lot of backlash, especially in my comments. It's all like, well, my taxes don't have to. It's like, first of all, people who are paying student loans also pay taxes. Like, let's be clear about that. We're all paying taxes here. So the people paying their loans are paying taxes and we don't get to decide where our taxes go. Right. Right. And I always say, well, you know, I love the fact that my taxes are used to fund public schools. I don't have kids. Right. Right. So should I pull those taxes out of the schools? No, we want the, the betterment of society. So right. forgiving these student loans would do so many fundamental things for people of color, would add so much money back into the economy. The, the arguments against student loan forgiveness are always just so like, I don't, I don't understand. I don't mm -hmm. understand this selfish stance, but I am very, 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 very pro student loan forgiveness. I don't, I, I don't care how long it took me to pay off. I want everyone else to have it. Me too. So Katrina, be honest to Melissa, well, how many payments have you missed at this point for well, your student loan? Well, the pandemic, they started, they restarted the payments about three three months ago or three payments ago. Yeah, like <laughs> October was like the first so one. So I've missed three payments so far okay. since they've started. Okay. And, and I read, but I read on CNN, nine million people Correct. didn't hit their first payment. So you're part of the nine million. I'm still hoping that yeah. they will forgive the rest of the loans. There is, I'm though, I just too. read that if you've been paying, consistently paying your loans for 20 years... There's a new thing. They're forgiving those yes. loans that have been really, but I haven't been consistently paying my loan. So that's another thing. I just, you know what it is. Mm. It's so daunting. Like remember when you made that first call Yeah. and you called the student loan people like eight advantage, eight advantage owns my loan now. Yeah. And you're like, Hey, what do I have to do? Them telling you what you have to do and even seeing what number you owe every month. It's like, how do I even start? It right. makes me just be like, yo, yeah, I'm done with it, which is probably the worst thing ever. But that I, I know I'm not the only one that feels that way. It's just, it's so daunting. Like, how did you get yourself out of that? Oh my gosh, how can I do this? 30 years, like. Yeah, when she said 30 years, I really, I, of course, like you're always so nice to customer service or as nice right. as you can be because like they, yeah, they don't have, right. right. you know, they can control it. I wanted to say so many curse words, like <laughs> 30 years? Are you like 30 years, seriously? Um, but I knew I did not want to do this for 30 years. And I really, although the graduated repayment plan wasn't the best option, that was the option that worked for me. And I think a lot of times people get, 
embarrassed or they're just like, oh, how did I end up in this mess? Because I, de- like I said, I was crying. I'm like, you know, I have two degrees. I'm first gen, eldest daughter. I'm supposed to be leading the way. I'm supposed to right. know what I'm doing. And I'm a bad example, like all this negative talk. And I'm like, no one taught me how to do this. Right. That's what I really had to remind myself. And whatever steps and strategy that I'm learning and teaching myself and figuring out how to do to tackle these loans that is changing my, you know, my two younger brothers' lives. That is really mm. helping an impact. I remember my dad's retired now. I helped him open his first Roth IRA. He was 60. So it's like, yeah, yeah. I learned things late. It was a little messy. I was figuring it out, but it's still impactful in helping others and helping myself along the way. So whatever strategy or path you're taking, it's a step, right? It's a step more than you took yesterday. So I think it's really, really important that we give ourselves so much grace, especially with dealing with debt, especially for things we just did not know that were never taught to us. So give yourself grace. (laughs) You are trying. We are still in the on-ramp period. Um, So they're not going to report you to credit, but we have until September. So FYI, like FYI until September, then they're going to start like knocking on the door. I I do read that there are student loans being... Biden is for giving some student loans. Yeah, yeah the right? new wave was the one that I said. The twenty but how, years. So how come you're not in this bracket? Like, well, what's going on? What is? What do we need? Biden? Hello, hello, <laughs> Joe. What up? Like, yeah, like, like everybody. Like, but but there are efforts to this, right? Yeah. Like there are loans being forgiven. Right. Yeah. Right? But he just needs to forgive them all. Right. Right. Yeah. So that is the thing. So he has forgiven billions of dollars of loans for, I believe the number now is with this new wave, 829 million people total since he started, you know, his presidency. But it's like, it's been intricacies of what can be forgiven and how can we forgive right. it and who's getting all these things. Because when we tried with that first plan. We, I wasn't there, but yeah. when he, you know, his administration tried with the original plan where it was like, oh, we're going to get 10,000 forgiven and then 20,000 right. if you had um, Pell grants and things like that. And the Supreme Court was like, no, nah, we're not doing that. Right. So shot it down in June 2023. And so now the Department of Education is back to the drawing board, trying to use different precedents, different laws. And so we will likely see and hear some updates this year, not at the top of the year. Everyone's like, is it going to be Q1? I'm like, probably not. Yeah. Um, but I would think around like Q2, it's an election year. So Q3, <laughs> right, right. as we're getting closer to the election, I think we're going to hear an update on you know what's to come because they have been meeting. They had three previous meetings, so October, November, December. So now we're waiting to see, you know, but I do know that safe plan is coming with new updates in July, July 1st. Fingers crossed. Yeah. Safe plan July 1st coming with the new updates on how much they can take. Like, so loan, uh, loan payments could be going down for a lot of people. So it's like a waiting game, but it's so much people saying it's against the law. It's unconstitutional. Like to help people. I don't know. I just, I can't get on that wave. So I am desperately hoping that we get something really soon, you know, to get those loans forgiven. Who's impacted the most by these student loans? Do you know what I mean? Okay. And maybe that's like a big question, but in general, when we think about student loans being forgiven and what that could mean, what are the benefits of this happening? How does everybody win in this situation ultimately? Well, 100%, I just wrote the statistics in the book, um, is the BIPOC BIPOC community. So it's so many disadvantages for, you know, people of color that we are the ones taking the brunt of the loans. And it's also taking us longer to pay off the loan. So over the life of our careers, 
we're taking home less money because so much is going towards paying back these loans. And so forgiving these loans would have a huge impact on the BIPOC community. And like I said, put so much more money into the economy. They're saying, why aren't millennials buying homes? Why aren't, you know, mm-hmm. why aren't uh, black people buying homes? Why aren't Hispanic people buying homes? We're paying off these loans. That's why, you know, we wanted to go to school. That's what we were told. Right. Go to school, right. get this education, get this degree. That's going to give you the the golden ticket, the American dream. And it's it's shackled us. It's made us carry these six-figure debts, these five-figure debts. And it's just like, well, now I can't progress the way I thought I would be able to by going to school, getting this degree, getting this job that's not paying me enough to pay these loans. So I severely, severely, severely feel like if we were able to at least bring down these student loans to mm-hmm. below the six-figure mark, right? Because we have, so right now, student loan debt is the largest debt outside of mortgages. Wow. That is the largest debt in our country outside of, and mortgages are like two, three hundred, four, five hundred thousand dollars $500,000. But we have trillion dollar in student loan debt like there's clearly a problem, right? There's This is a red flag. And let's not even talk about the interest, right? So I always talk about like, okay, well, if we don't want to forgive all of the loans, we can forgive the interest. That could be the first step towards reform where I paid $50,000 more than what I oh borrowed. Gosh, it's, it's sick. Right? So that these are conversations that I think we should be having with nuance, but it's always like, I paid mine, you pay yours. That's not the point, right? Right. The point is we need to make sure that the next generation is not having the same problem. We're supposed to be improving society as we gain all this technology and all this information and all this growth. We don't want people to have have the same problems we're having today in 20 years. So that's why this conversation is so Isn't that the whole point of just like each generation doing better? I guess I'm always so confused on that. Why are, you know, when people are harping on this idea, like, oh, I paid it, then you should pay it. It's like, well, that's great that you paid it. Right. And I'm glad you were able to, and I'm glad everything, you know, lined up the way right. it was supposed to for you. But just look at the bigger picture mm-hmm. and what that does. Yeah. Our economy would be substantially better. People would be in better positions. And ultimately when society is happier, people are just better yeah. or kinder to one another. Yeah. Like yeah. life is actually good. <laughs> Imagine that. Like, wouldn't that be amazing? I always talk about, so a lot of people will say like, well, I worked, you're just too lazy. I worked six jobs and did this. And I'm like, that that feels okay to you? Like, I'm sorry you even had to do that. Like, right. I don't want and you I to do that. And I wish you didn't have to go through that. Right. Exactly. Right. Exactly. And that's the whole point of this. We don't want your kids' kids or right. whoever, your family members have to go through this. Right. Okay. So you shared your experience in buying a house and that is how basically your world completely unraveled (laughs) and then you rebuilt it all back together and figured things out. Okay. So what are your thoughts on renting, you know, versus owning, right? Because there's so many different discussions behind it. There are some people who feel like, Hey, when you're renting, you're throwing your money away versus owning and paying your mortgage. What are your thoughts on that? This is gonna, this is so controversial. So I am one of the homeowners that doesn't feel it's always necessary to own a home to build wealth. It's helpful. It is helpful. And that's like, I always say these conversations require nuance. It's helpful to have a home that can help you build wealth. It is not necessary. It is not the only path. It's not the only way, right? And when people say that, well, when you're renting, you're throwing away money, that that comment feels so strange because you are paying for housing. How is housing ever a waste of money, right? And so people are, well, rent is going up and all these things. Baby, let me tell you about housing costs. First of all, taxes, <laughs> right? taxes on a house, they go up too, 
right? That it's not just like, oh, you just have your mortgage and you're good. I always tell people like your mortgage is the minimum you will ever pay every month. When you rent, that is the maximum you will ever pay every month. So that is something to absolutely think about. You also need to have a decent amount of discretionary income when you're a homeowner that you may not need to have as a renter. So for people to say, well, you need to be a homeowner. You're never going to build wealth. I don't have an extra thousand dollars if these pipes break. Like right now, my toilet, my everything's clogged in my house right now. I have to like go find a plumber. If I did not have a sinking fund for my home, I would I would have to take on debt. I would I have to get it fixed, right? So when I'm a homeowner, if I don't have this discretionary income, I cannot I cannot fix things, and it's all on me. Whereas if I'm renting my landlord, as long as not a slumlord, my landlord is going to come in and fix this. And it's not my, you know, Mm -hmm. not my responsibility. I do think that a lot of times people say, well, if I buy a home, I'm going to immediately make profit because we talk about equity, equity, equity. And that's another uh, misunderstanding. I don't think people understand what equity is. It's great, but we don't understand that. Yes, we have equity. And when you take equity, you need to use it, right? So you're kind of creating a new form of debt for you. They say good debt, which is fine you're creating a new form of debt for yourself. That may not be the financial position that everyone can be in, mm-hmm. right? So it's like, yes, I would love to buy 17 properties and make all this money, but it's not as easy as we you know, as we think. So I always say one of the great, most important paths to wealth is to be investing in the market. Once you get that done, once you have your emergency savings fund, once you have a decent amount of discretionary income, we can then start talking about, yeah, I'm going to become a homeowner and that's going to be a part of my portfolio and part of my net worth. But I think there are so many steps missing and that people try to shame people for renting and not being able to buy a house. The housing market is chaos right now. Oh, yeah. It is chaos. And it's a really big thing on timing. Timing is an advantage. It is a privilege for many people. I bought my home in 2019. I have a 3% interest rate. Hold on to it. <laughs> right? Exactly. The taxes are getting crazy. But I talk about it now. Five years later, I could not buy my house now. Absolutely. I could not live yeah. in the neighborhood at all. It, I would be priced out. Mm-hmm. So it's all about timing. So for people to say, why are you renting? Why aren't you buying? Rent is so expensive. Have we seen the prices of homes? Right. <laughs> at 7% interest, at 6% interest, that feels chaotic. It, it, it is. It's insanity. Yeah. And my homeowner's insurance went up $400. So like, let's please, (laughs) let's include all the parts of homeownership and not just like, it's a pretty mortgage. It's a lot of other things too. So I really feel like you need to do what's best for yourself in the situation. And for a lot of people, especially younger people, if you have no idea where you even want to plant your roots, if you don't know if you want to live in New York or if you want to live wherever, it might not be the best move to buy That's a home a right point. now. That's a good point. Right. Because right. it's like, I'm either going to have to sell, which is not always the easiest thing to do, right. or I'm going to have to rent this out to help cover the mortgage that I still have. Like right now, I'm like, you know, maybe I want to move. And I know I'm like, okay, well, I have this home that I have to figure out what I'm going to do with it if I do want to move. Mm-hmm. So let's just like widen the aperture in the conversation, <laughs> right? So it's just not as black and white as people often make it seem. You mentioned emergency savings fund. How many of these funds should we have? (laughs) What should be our goal? So for your emergency savings fund, I always say it should be three to six months of your expenses. So we want three should be our first goal. 
because we don't want to add debt to our financial landscape, right? We want to make sure that we're able to stay afloat. We don't want to be underwater. And so, like I mentioned, all my things in my house are clogged up. I have a house sinking fund. So if something happens, Mm -hmm. I pull money from that fund to fix something in the house. But that also means I have to put that in my budget. So we're going back to the budget, that byline where it's like, okay, every month I'm adding in $80 into this fund and I'm not gonna touch it unless it's for its intended use. Now for emergency savings fund, if we're just getting started, that could just be your big blanket. So mine is like a little more intricate because I'm like, I have a fund for my dog. I have a fund for my oh. house. Yeah, she's old. So I'm like, let me just, in oh, case. Oh, you're you know, so sweet. I have to, thank you. Yeah. So it's like, I have a fund for my car, but it's like, if we're just getting started, I'll just label emergency savings and you're going to put, okay, every month I spend $2,000. So my emergency saving should be 6,000. So that's going to be my goal. So, and again, it's like, well, I don't have $6,000. It doesn't, you don't have to have 6,000 to put into it immediately. It could say, okay, I'm going to fund my emergency savings over the next 12 months, over the next 18 months, over the next 24 months, whatever it is, but I'm going to keep adding this consistent amount into this particular account every, and I'm not going to take it out unless I have an emergency. And people oftentimes feel ashamed, like, well, I had to use my emergency savings. If you used it for emergency, that was the point. Right. You did what you set out to do, and that is the goal, right? right? So don't feel ashamed when you have to tap into it. It's there because now you don't have to go swipe and add to your, you know, to your debt. So I'm a big, big, big supporter of emergency savings funds, but I'm also very, you know, realistic. The economy is tough. It doesn't mean you have to fund it immediately, but you want to at least have a plan in motion to get it funded. And it, when you say a fund, is that an account? Like just yeah, going to I the bank? A, yeah. So okay. Dan, going to the just bank to is the bank 2024. <laughs> um, yeah. So I just open up an account. So there are a lot of different banks that you can have like buckets essentially. Well, one bank does literally call it a bucket. So you can title it. So you can say emergency savings oh, fund. Got it. And then I'm like, okay. So then now every time my check comes in, I'm going to send $40 into this particular bucket. And oh, that's that what, sense. yeah. So I call them a fund, but you could call them like a bucket, a little whatever. I call them sinking funds because I'm like, when the ship is sinking, I love. That. I have something to like help me stay afloat. So. I love that. Thanks. I think that's so great. I have a question. Yeah. I see so many videos. This is just going back to the home ownership and everything. Yeah. About people buying property. They're like, oh, you open up an LLC, <laughs> then you get money from the bank. You get mm-hmm. a $200,000 with no um, collateral or whatever. I don't know what they're saying. And then you buy a property, then you rent that out, then you buy another property. What's it your, all sounds very scammy, it sounds so but easy. we're also just really ignorant. And to it this just space. sounds so easy. And I've seen them from multiple different influencers, if you yeah. will. What's your take on that? Is it that easy the way they're they're positioning it? Let me tell you something. When I <laughs> <laughs> when I bought my home, so I uh, closed in 2019. So when I was buying my home, I never felt more financially exposed than when I was purchasing my home and getting that mortgage. The bank does not play. So on TikTok or Instagram, they may make it seem like it's a one, two, three really quick. And you know, no, it is not. The bank <laughs> called my job twice. They were like, does she work here? How much does she bring in? What does her checks look like? Does she often come to work? Does she call out of work? Because they want to know their money's coming back. The bank isn't just giving money out for fun, for free. Like, yeah, we trust you. No. So is it possible for you to buy this and do that? Yes. But it is not going to be like, yeah, I'm about to buy five properties this year. No, because the bank was like, I had purchased a car previously. The bank was like, oh, why did you have your credit run twice? And I was like, I was comparing rates for a car. They're like, okay. Like they 
they are little like financial gangsters. They're not playing right. about their money. So when you are going into home ownership, you really need to have all of your financials ready and they're going to comb through them with a fine tooth comb because you're a liability. And that's what I always say. So you get the better rates, you get all of these things because you're less of a liability, but we are always a liability to the bank and they're not giving money out for free. So Long answer made short. Yes, it's possible, but it's not as quick as you know people make it seem. Yeah, like, like a oh, thirty second sign video up for an LLC, then you get a grant or a business loan, small business loan for two hundred thousand dollars. I believe you, you right now, bro. Christina. I've seen five of them, so I, I know the steps. <laughs> No, that's crazy because it's like, why don't we ever talk about taxes and what you have to pay to form an LLC and all these things? It's like, these are not really free steps. You still have to pay and do all of these things. And <laughs> it's so funny because the video, they're walking out of the bank counting their money. Yeah, <laughs> they're like, like they're putting on a table, they're taking pictures, signing some sort of loan. It's so great. The videos are great. Do you, <laughs> what info do you have about an LLC and buying a home with it? Or like, how does that, or what is an LLC and what is the hack behind this? So I do not provide info. So I like to stay in my lane. Right. Is what I, you, know, you know, so it's like I talk about things that I know about, that I've experienced, right. that I have, you know, data and things to back up. So I do have an LLC currently being switched into an S Corp for all tax purposes. And I am not doing it myself. I have a prof tax professional doing it, <laughs> not an influencer. Like, because I'm just like, I don't play around with the government. No, no, no. I don't. Like, Y'all are trying to cut crazy corners. I'm like, this is what rich people don't want you to know is it what rich people are you know or scammers yeah, like right. are we like, are we setting ourselves up to go to prison like, right. that, like have we seen what federal prison looks like it's a ppp loan times two. Oh my god please <laughs> 2.0 that's not even yeah so i i am an llc and so my business partner is a lawyer right and so we created an llc to create distance from our personal assets right so if we ever let runs up in legal issues they would come after the business's funds right. and not my like emergency savings funds or after my house or yeah. things like that. That's why we created it. And that's typically when people are like, okay, we're making a little bit of money. We want, we don't want to like intermingle our things. Right. So I don't know much information and I don't dive too deeply into that side of TikTok. I'm on like North Sea <laughs> TikTok. That's, <laughs> that's the information I'm getting. Um, so I don't, cause I hear all the time, like form an LLC and then buy a G wagon and you can write it off. And I'm like, I don't know. I'm like, do we, you still have to pay for the car. Like right. that's. <laughs> That's, I don't, like, do we know what write-offs are? Like, we, bring in a CPA, please. Like, please. Like, I don't know. So I'm sorry I cannot provide much more information beyond don't do illegal things, please. Yes. The best one. They will come and get you. Yeah. 100%. The government does not play. I don't know why we think the government's our little friend. Right. Like, no. They don't play. Mm -hmm. And I just really don't feel like, and I always say, like, how come people don't listen more to Warren Buffett, right? We're always talking about this, what rich people don't. I'm like, Warren Buffett, the best investor of all time, a billionaire tells us like, look, hey, invest in low cost index funds, invest for 20, 30 years, do this. And they're like, nope, I'm about to go form an LLC. It's like, we're listening to the wrong people. Oh, man. I don't know. I don't know. But yeah, so I try to get my financial like education from people who've been doing it right successfully and not in jail for like, right. you know, seven years. Yeah, we years. don't want to go to jail. Correct. <laughs> okay. What would you say are some common misconceptions about home ownership mm. versus renting? 
I think what a lot of people really forget or really confuse when it comes to home ownership and profit and things like that, they don't incorporate the fact that one, you're paying interest on your mortgage. There's, it's very, I don't know anyone that has a 0% mortgage. If you do that, it's... <laughs> That's amazing. Right. Um, you're paying interest, right? So that gets taken out of profit. I know people are like, well, you can write off the interest. You're still paying interest. You're paying interest. You're paying home repair costs and all these things. So when you're calculating the profit of how much you've made, it's not, oh, I bought my house for 200000 Now it's worth 400000 I've made 200000 in profit. That's not mm -hmm. how profit works, right? That's a misconception, right? You have to really calculate all of the other things you have put into this before you say, oh, you're renting. You're not making any money. I made 200000 Did you? Right. Are you sure? Like, did you pay taxes? Like, what's going on, right? So that's really one big um, misconception. I also think we really confuse what's a primary home, right, where you physically live, and a rental property. So most of the time, your primary residence is not going to be a super, like, profitable place because you're living there. Unless, I guess, you're airbnb like, a couch or something, maybe you're making right. some money back. But your primary residence is not the same as a rental property. You don't even get a mortgage the same way, oh, right? So when you're getting a primary residence mortgage and they ask you, like I said, the bank will ask you what you're about to use this house for, um, you're going to get two different types of mortgages and they have different rules. Like, oh, you have to live in this house for 70% of the time or you have to live in this house for two years or things like that. So you really want to pay attention to, okay, am I going to buy this home to live in it or am I going to buy this home to flip it or am I going to buy this home because I want to rent it? So those conversations get lost when you're just like, be a, be a homeowner, be a property owner. Right. What am I doing with the property? Because right. that is going to really set my expectations up differently. I'm not going to make a ton of money on my primary residence. I'm living here. So that's one thing. Another big thing, like I mentioned a little bit, your mortgage is the lowest amount you will ever pay when you're living in your home. Right. That is the lowest amount because you're going to have property taxes, which can go up. They, and people are like, they can go down too. I've I've lived in my house for five years. It's never gone down. Right. Uh, my parents have been homeowners for 30 years. Their property tax has never gone down and goes up. And people, you don't want your property tax to go down right. because then that means the value of the neighborhood in your home is going is decreasing, right? So people are like, oh, the value is going up. And so are those property taxes and they can go up. Mm -hmm. They can go up a lot, a lot, a lot. And it's just like, there's nothing you can do. You have to pay them or they're going to just be like, well... <laughs> right. <laughs> Give it back. You can't afford to live here. Right? right. And so that's another really big thing. Homeowners insurance. You have to have home. I mean, that's right. You're 99% you're supposed to have homeowners insurance. And if you're living in a co-op or a condo, you will have to have property, uh, homeowners insurance. Right. You cannot live there without it. And it's beneficial for you, right? Because if someone comes in and hurts themselves in your home, the homeowners, are, it's kind of same like having car insurance. Right. So you need to make sure you have really good homeowners insurance because you are covering, it's not just like, oh, I'm covering my little apartment. I'm covering a much larger space and so many other things that can happen. So I live in Long Island and my homeowners insurance includes flood like an additional mm -hmm. thing for flood. Cause like you're near the beach. I am not that near to the beach. Like right. I truly, I'm like, I cannot see the beach. They're like, well, something can happen and your house can flood. I'm just like, Ugh. But okay. All right, fine. That's fine. So these are things we need to talk about. There are so many hidden costs of home ownership that if we would just not saying that, oh, being a homeowner is bad. It's I enjoy living in my home. 
but you want to make sure that you set people up for success. I was talking about how even during the purchasing time, I didn't know all these little fees. First of all, you have to pay to apply for a mortgage, like your application fee. The bank's mm. like, okay, it's going to be $300 for this. It's going to be appraisal. That's going to be this cost. Then you need to get an inspection. It's going to be $500 and you should always get an inspection. Always get your house inspected. Why? So if you do not get your home inspected, you're kind of buying a used car essentially right. without knowing any of the problems. So you're taking it. It's just like, okay, I paid $10,000 and then you go and the engine blows up, right? And it's right. like, well, you bought it. That's your business. It's kind of the same thing. So when you buy a home, you want them to inspect to check for the HVAC. HVACs are expensive to oh, replace. yes, yes, yes. You don't want to buy a home that has an HVAC that's on its way out, right. right? So the inspector will be able to tell you like, hey, you should like, talk them down in price on the home because this HVAC has only got a year left or whatever, or you can decide, okay, I'm not going to buy this home because I don't want to have to replace this. You want to have the inspector check your roof. Roofs are also expensive to replace. So these are things that the inspector will be able to catch that you probably cannot catch with your, because you don't know what to look for. Right. Exactly. Absolutely. Absolutely. Get home inspected. But these are a bunch of costs that you might not know. If you're just like, I got my down payment. That's not the only thing. There are a whole bunch of other steps and things that are going to cost you that you want to save for. My first week, I was so ridiculous. My first week in my home, <laughs> I went to cook breakfast and realized I had no tools, like no spatula, no pan, <laughs> right? Things that I didn't think about. Per- it was, I was younger. I didn't think about purchasing because like, oh, I never had to purchase them before. I never right. had to think about, oh, like now you got to buy the toilet paper. Now you got to buy all these things. Right. And it's like, oh, your window has a draft. You want to estimate on how much windows cost to fix because you don't want Ooh. frost coming in in, you, in the winter. So all of these things are, and people are like, well, get a home warranty. Absolutely. I am a big supporter of home warranties, but some of them are scammy, right? Some of them are going to be like, yeah, we'll cover this. And they come like, oh, my washer dryer broke. Like, oh, we don't co- cover that. Or, oh, this, we don't cover this particular model. So you have to do your due diligence to get a good home warranty to help you offset a lot of the costs that you might not know is on the way. My washer dryer broke the second week I was in my... It was a tough Stop time. Stop it. Oh tough time. God. Tough time. I was just like, <laughs> I want to go back home. Like, I can't do this. It was so bad. But hearing all of this, it makes... I don't know. It, is home ownership worth it? It can be. Right. Right. It can be. It depends on your circumstance. It depends on what you want. It depends on if that is a goal that you really want to hit in the next five years, 10 years. If you want a lot of people like, well, I want, you know, to grow my family in a home or I want my family to have a backyard or things like that. So if that is something you want, I think it is absolutely worth it. I just want you to be mentally prepared and financially prepared. Right. To understand. (laughs) Like, oh, it's not going to be just this. Cool. Let me save an extra $10,000 or let me save an extra $15,000 because I now know that these things could pop up. So I think just having more conversations on what the reality is and the true cost of being a homeowner as opposed to just put your down payment, just sign your closing. You're good. You're here. Your keys like. No, 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 no. I didn't even know. So one of my um, real estate friends is just like, yeah, try to get your closing towards the end of the month because then you'll pay less uh, interest or less taxes because the less days in the month. I'm like, why are people talking about that? Like, why are... Yeah, I did not know that. And that's the thing. Like, if more people just had these conversations, like, hey, you know, when you're closing, try to get it like on the 29th, that will save you some money. That would I would love I would love to see a TikTok on that. Like, tell me about that because I did not know. Mine was like the nineteenth, so I didn't I wasn't able to push it. So I was like, all right, but interesting. Yeah, yeah. Wow, 
Okay, we're learning so much. Clearly, Katrina and I have a lot <laughs> yeah. of work to do. Okay, so how would you explain financial freedom? What does that mean? Yes. So financial freedom, I like to say I can do whatever I want whenever I want. That's what it is to me. It's going to be different for you know different people with different nuances if you have kids, whatever. But for me... I, I don't want to wake up early. I don't want to have to right. clock in. I don't want to have to do yes. these things. So financial freedom means I don't have to do what I don't want to do. And right. I can do whatever I want to do with my time. And so a lot of times people are like, well, what's, what's my number? What is my number where I can say like, I'm not going to work or I'm not waking mm -hmm. up. And that's going to be different for everyone. So you really want to calculate your financial independence number. And what that means is you're going to add up all your expenses. That's, you got to take the money date. You got to go and date your, your finances. And you're going to add up all your expenses for the year. So it's going to a little more daunting than the month. And then you're going to multiply that by 25. By 25. Why that 25? is the number. So essentially what they're saying, and it's probably going to change as we like live longer, but they're saying when you retire, you probably have about 25, 25 oh. more years, right? And essentially if you're investing in the market, you can withdraw 4% of what you have in there and live and be fine. And the, the market's going to keep replenishing that money. So you won't run out of money. So that is your financial independence number. So for me, it was 1.7 million. Mm -hmm. I'm like, that's how much I need to live like my current lifestyle. Now I prefer to spend a little more in my older years, right? I'm just like, I want to travel more, right? Because right. I won't have to yeah. work. And so I am leaning into fat fire. So fire is financial independence, retire early. And so there are different types. Like I mentioned earlier, I reached coast fire. Right. So I no longer have to invest. Any dollar I invest now is really just buying back my time. But then there's fat fire. So fat fire is for people who want to spend $100,000 a year or more. So that's going to put you at saving or investing $2.5 million. So right now, that is my goal. I'm like, okay, 2.5, I can I can spend, I'm not spending $100,000 now, but I'm like, I don't know what I wanna do in 20 years. Right. I don't know what I wanna do in 25, 30 years. And so I keep investing in the market so I can reach that right. fire. So that's my goal. But for someone else who's like, nah, I just wanna spend 50 or $60,000 a year. I don't live in New York. I live you know, in a lower cost area. Their number is going to be different. It could be 1.3, it could be 1.5. But you keep investing and you let compound interest do its work so that when you reach that retirement age, when you reach that financial independent number, you can say peace out. <laughs> you can say, okay, I this is that. my last day of work. I'm going to do whatever Oof. I want to do. Oh man, what a dream. Yeah. I know. I, I, my father's retired now. He is traditional retirement age. So he worked many, many, many years and he's just like living his best life right now. And I'm just like, I want to do that now. Yeah. Like I want to just, <laughs> yeah. you know, he's try. He just went on a two week um, trip to Asia with my mom, and I'm like, so nice. Beautiful. That's sweet. I'm <laughs> in New York. It's 13 degrees. Right. <laughs> I you have to work, and so he's just like, yeah. But I woke up every day at 5 a.m. for 40 years. I'm like, oh that's true. Gosh. That's true. You're right. You're right. You're yeah. right. My bad. Yeah. So, but yeah. So that's why I'm like, I need to hurry up. I need to buy back some time. When you say calculate all of your expenses up. How does someone go about doing this? Is it just like looking at their their statement? Their statement. Their yeah. monthly statement. <laughs> yes, there we go. Yes. Clearly, so, I haven't calculated <laughs> my expenses. I don't want to look at the damage. It's okay. No, but you're going to start today, right? Yes. Best time to start is today. Today. Yes. <laughs> yes. So I do a monthly money date. And so what I do is I look at what I've spent for the month. And some months are going to be higher than others. Like this sure. month, I had to 
homeowner's insurance had to be paid. Um, right. So I was like, okay. But you look at how much you spend per month and then you just add it all up for those 12 months. So every month I know how much I've spent. And so when I get to December, I'm like, okay, I spent this in January, this in February, this in March. And then I look at that number in December. It typically, some some years I'll be wilding. Some years, <laughs> some years it's a little wild. Um, but it will typically be around the same average, right? So right now I'm typically spending about sixty dollars to $65,000 a year. So I know like, okay, I can live comfortably for the most part. Inflation is going to inflate. Of course I know, but I can live comfortably for the most part investing in the market. And when I retire, I can probably spend sixty to $70,000. Got it. But again, um, maybe I want to be extravagant or maybe I'm just Travel. trying to yeah. prepare for the inflation. I'm going for the 100,000 mark because mm -hmm. it's just like we were talking earlier about groceries, oh, everything. It's, it's, it's like, ridiculous. And I'm so I'm nervous. So we're preparing right. now, right? We're preparing right. for our future selves. What is generational wealth? So generational wealth, similar with financial freedom and financial independence, is going to vary slightly from person to person. But for me, generational wealth is passing down not only just monetary, you know, sustenance for my my family. Mm -hmm. It's also passing down the information and knowledge for them to continue. I think that's one of the big pieces that's often missing. It's like, yeah, I just want to leave my family, you know, millions, make sure they're good. Yeah, but I don't want them to bankrupt themselves, right? So I need them to understand mm. like, okay, I'm leaving you $2 million, but this is how you should use this to move forward to make sure that you're good for all of your life. And then the people after you're also good. So it's really building in the financial stability and the financial education to ensure that my lineage continues to be able to, you know, thrive, thrive financially, emotionally, mentally, all that stuff, but definitely thrive financially. What are some tips we can do right now to start saving money? Because we need, like you said, to have money saved yeah. before we try to buy a home. Yeah. So what are some tips that we can do. Okay. That you believe in us. I that do we can believe. I believe in you. Um, I'm really big on value spending. And so value spending, I incorporate into my budget because I incorporate myself into my budget. I have a self-care byline. Some months, it's, some months it's higher or lower, depending like if I want to see Beyonce, right? 2023 <laughs> was a high self-care <laughs> year. Um, ticket, ticket prices getting crazy. But I have... <laughs> self-care in my budget byline. And so I value spend my self-care budget. And so what that means is I don't try to keep up with the Joneses. I don't shop in TikTok shop if it's not something I really love and value. So for right. me, I love getting my nails done. That mm -hmm. is something that I really love. It makes me feel good. So that is a part of my value spend. So I put money into that self-care byline for that. But that also means that I'm not going to be spending hundreds of dollars on something else. I'm like, oh, okay, that's cute. But it doesn't really matter to me. Right. I also really, really, really like giving gifts. Mm -hmm. And so I... I have a byline that's for gifts. That's a part of my value spend. So I save for the whole year for people's birthdays, for holidays. And I also have for like um, anything that's a really big celebration or grief, right? So if one of my friends, mm. their family members pass away, or if someone gets pregnant or is getting married, I have money aside to give like a gift card or something that is celebrating or helping them mourn and, you know, support them. That's important to me. That's a part of my value spend. But that means I drown out all the other noise. That means it's like, okay, I sit down, I say, these are the three things that are really important. Or these are the four things that are really important. And then I don't spend money on the other things that they don't bring me joy. I don't really care about right. them. Right. So like buying high end, I don't know, like bags is not really, I am, I will say I do love a high end 
glasses. That is like a really big thing for me. But again, I'm you like, have okay, nice glasses. Yeah. Thank Those you. Are very girl. nice. Yeah. I that, but that's like important to me, right? Whereas right. my my partner, he's like, I don't I don't give a crap about glasses, but he's like, I love sneakers. So I'm like, okay, well let's let's sit down and budget because these sneaker prices are getting crazy as well, right? right? Mm-hmm. So we figure out a value spend, and then all the other things are not really a part of our budget or our spending. So I think if you feel like I really like spending money, I have a friend who's like, I love swiping though. Like it really makes me feel so good, like spending money. I'm like, okay, well, first of all, let's put a cap. Right. <laughs> let's put a cap on what we're going to spend. It means you can still swipe. You can still get that high, feel really good, but it's going to be things that you're going to use, right? Because if I'm buying something, I'm like, I just really need to swipe. I really am having an emotional tough day. Right. And then in two weeks, I'm like, I don't even care about this thing anymore. Like it brings no value to me. I don't like it. It's the same thing with subscriptions. If you sign up for a subscription and you're just like, okay, I really love it. And then in a month, you're like, this is really not doing it anymore. Cancel it. It's not, it's no longer adding value to your life. And now you can use that money for something else. Right. You can throw it into another part of your budget. But I think when we talk about budget, you can still spend. You can still spend accordingly. You can spend on things you love and it will still work into your budget. So for me right now, I spend 400 on myself a month. Once I hit that 400, that's it. Right. It's no Wait, roll, does that roll. include like takeout? So like, I have hold a, on. I have, <laughs> I have a food budget. Okay. okay right. Okay. So I I have, like, I'm like, okay, this is the amount of money I could spend on food, but that's like, this is for groceries. And if you want to Uber eat. So I really, when we Ooh. get to the end of the month, it's a little tough beginning of the month. You're like, yeah, I got this. And then you'll do like two uh, rounds of the grocery and you're like, I don't even want to cook. Like, let's get this pizza. Like, yes. This. Right. But you really need to pace yourself. And so I'll do it for the month. I'm like, okay, I have 400 for groceries. And I'm like, but that means every week I have to spend like a hundred bucks. If I go over one week, if I spend 150, that means the next week I cannot spend the hundred bucks. Right, right. right. So these are the conversations I have, but at least I know the numbers. At least I know what works. And if there are months, like I said, I don't do as well as I thought I was going to do. That means on my money day, I need to make adjustments to help me catch up the next month. So December was a bit of a high month. So January, I was like, okay, well, you're not spending 400 on yourself this month. We're going to put that down to 100, right? right? Next month, they give you back to 400, but you got to pay this bill off, right? Because right. you was acting crazy in December. <laughs> and these are the conversations yes. I have, but it works. So it's like, okay, I might've did a misstep, but I'm not just going to say, well, forget it. I'm not budgeting anymore or I'm bad at money. I'm just going to recalculate and recalibrate for the next month. We got a lot of work. Yeah, to a do. lot of work. <laughs> one step at a time. One step at a time. Okay, so what is passive income? Is it something that we should be striving for? And how do we do this? Yes, yes, and yes. Um, <laughs> passive income is like another a subset of multiple streams of income, which everyone should have. We should not be relying on one stream because yes. a lot of things we cannot control, right? Mm-hmm. Things happen, life happens, a new additional expense happens or a layoff happens. We're just like, oh my God, I can't really afford to navigate, right? Even at bare bones, minimum budget, I'm I'm drowning right now. And so it's super, super, super important. But the thing I always say, I like to be super honest, passive income is not always passive in the beginning. You're going to have to put in some work. So for example, I created a lovely stream of passive income from my teaching career. I started selling my lesson plans and unit plans. That was one of the ways I was able to pay off so much debt is because I was like, I'm not making a lot of money. I don't have time to be doing 30 different side hustles because I'm waking up at 5 a.m. I'm teaching these kids. Mm -hmm. I'm coming home. Like, I want to try to go to the gym. I want to eat. I'm time like, I don't have time for this. And so I found this website. I was like, okay, this is credible. People are using it. It's legal. So I started started creating packages of my lesson plans and unit plans that I was already teaching. I was already creating, spending the time doing for work. And then I put them up on the site and I started making $10,000 
a year to help Amazing. me pay off the loans. But I was spending 40 to 50 hours in the beginning putting together the lessons and unit yes. plan. So I'm like, yeah. we need to be honest when we say passive income. In the beginning, it's very active. Mm -hmm. It is very active income. The only true, true, true streams of passive income are the interest from your high yield savings because you don't have to do anything. You just right. put the money in. Or if you're collecting dividends from the, the stock market, right? Passive, because I'm not doing anything. I put the money in, I earn the money. Everything else is going to have some sort of action you have to take mm -hmm. in order for it to become passive. And now I've been out of the classroom for two years and I'm still making money on those Let's lesson plans. Let's go. Right? Yes, so it's Melissa, like, yes. Thank you. <laughs> so that's passive now. Like I could sleep and someone could buy it and like I'll make right. money. But when I was up for those 40, 50 hours, I was not asleep. It was not passive. So if you are thinking of creating a stream of income, a new stream of passive, a digital product, you're going to have to put in the hours in the beginning and you're going to have to like market it and do all of these things. But once it picks up that stream, that passiveness, then it's just like, yeah, I'm making money in my sleep now after much, much, much hours of no sleep. Oh, that's so good. We, we also got to figure this out. What are we going to do? <laughs> it's a lot of work. I don't even know where to start. It's okay. Start today. today yes, but I will to start know. today. Yeah, that's what okay. it is. So, Melissa, I know in your book, which we're going to talk about, yeah. can you speak on some of the systemic barriers that you discovered along the way that has prevented people of color, BIPOC community from having equitable access to wealth building and to really have financial freedom. Right. So one of the things I talk about it in the home ownership chapter, um, <laughs> where Initially, loans weren't even being given out to black people. They weren't given out to people of color in the beginning where we had a black bank early, early, early on, and it was created to support and fund the financial growth of the black community. And it was taken over and bought out and black people lost a ton, a ton, a ton, a ton of their own money, their hard earned money, because loans were now being given out to the majority mm -hmm. to the privileged and they no longer had access to their own money. They no longer had access to get wow. loans to buy a home. And this was very, very early, the twenties, 30, like this is not present now. And now we've seen it multiple different times with our little uh, housing crises where a lot of banks and we had one most recently are not providing mortgages for people and home ownership, like I said, is not the only way to wealth, but it is one of the, the big sure. ones that we talk about in the country where I have the same credit score, I have the same income, I have all the same accreditations as someone else and you're not giving me the loan to get a home. Even though I have everything else that you have given someone who's just as comparable to me and now I can't buy a home. So now I have to continue, you know, in this rat race or we have banks that were, we're not going to name names. We have banks that are providing subprime mortgages. Subprime mortgages are often foreclosed homes. So, or often lead to foreclosure, I should say. So now you're giving me this, this mortgage. The, the interest rate is horrible, right? Because my credit might not have been so great. So you viewed me as a liability, but you're going to take advantage of the fact that I probably can't really afford this or I'm going to miss a payment and you're going to take the home back. So now I've lost the money that I've invested and now my credit is shot, right? So now I can't really navigate to do other things. I can't even get a credit card because my credit's been ruined by wow. this foreclosure. So these are things that are happening where it's just like, oh, you know, pull yourself up by the bootstraps. My boots don't have straps. Like, let's start there, right? Mm. So we don't have the same access to things. We don't have, and I talk about the same thing when we talk about women in finance. They're just like, oh, well, you know, it's, it's fair pay now. 
Is it? Because mm. women just got, mm. were just allowed to get their own bank account in the 70s. We're not that far removed, right? Wait. So, Correct. Just in the 70s? Correct. So prior, and it might have been like 79, 80. So prior to that, wow. you had to be married or your father or a man had to sign the account. So their name was on it, but you could not go to the bank Stop. and open. Yes. We we have Ruth Beta Ginsburg to thank for helping us get over that hump. But when we talk about like, yeah, you're, you know, you just need to show up and work hard. My working hard is way different than your working hard. Right. Like I am working on 10X here just to catch up because you're already ahead of me in the race. So these conversations where it's just like, oh, you're not working hard enough or you didn't learn this or mm. you didn't do this. I don't even have access. We're, we're now in an area where there are neighborhoods that don't have libraries. Mm hmm. So it's just like, okay, we have some areas. And I, and I talk about it. So when I was teaching, I taught in three different schools. I taught in a school in Brooklyn that was Title I. And I taught in a really, really well-off school that was funded not only by the Department of Ed, but also had an additional benefactor. And when I was teaching in Brooklyn, I would have to go on Donors Twos to essentially like persuade people to give me money to purchase books. Stop. I'm so embarrassed right? to hear this. Yes. And what? That, yes. And I wouldn't even get enough to get like a full set. So I'd buy 30 books. I'd have 150 kids get 30 books and I'd be making copies of books so they could take home and read like the chapter. What a shame. Right. And that school was predominantly black and brown. And so I get to the more, you know, affluent school and they're like, here's your budget for books. Oh, oh, you no, could no, no. purchase 10 sets of 300 books. Go ahead, go off. And I'm just like, that's not right. This is the same state. I'm this I different borough. This is just a different borough, different community. And so we're saying how, yeah, so like, oh, just work harder. But we have students, amazing students who have access to far more things that I can give them. And I can't do the same that's in, so, in another school. That's not right. Exactly. So it's just like these conversations with the work harder bootstraps is like we're we're putting people at dis disadvantage from school, from right. from when they're in elementary, middle, junior, from when they're born. Right. I mean, we could even talk about the disparities when it comes to healthcare. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and and yes, the cost of what that does to a family. Like exactly. I mean, it is literally from the beginning. Correct. And then when we we are become 21, 22, they're like, why aren't you doing more? Why aren't you further ahead? Why did you have to take student loans? I'm like, well. My parents did not have right the hundred thousand dollars to send me to school, or and you know I didn't know all of these different things. So here I am in this race trying to catch up. I think this is why I love the title of the, your book. Thank you. I mean, it's so so. This is why I'm broke. I mean, <laughs> literally, when you look back on life, it's such a phrase you say. Oh, so this is why I'm broke. <laughs> this 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 yeah. this 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 list of things of why you aren't in the place that you want to be. Tell us about your book. What made you want to write it? What's in it? And what are people going to take away from it? Yes. So I really, really, really wanted to write this book because when I started my financial journey at 25, there was not a single person that looked like me, sounded like me, came from where I came from, understood what being first generation meant mm -hmm. with the stress that came with not just finances, but mentally where it's like, if I'm not good, right? Because essentially a lot of first gen um, people feel like I am my parents' retirement plan. 
They right, don't right, understand, right. right? They didn't know when they were 20, 25. So I have to make sure I get this right, right so that when they retire, they can be okay. That is a whole different stress and pressure to put on a 15, 16, 17 year old. Yes. Then someone who's like, oh, I'm just going to the football game. Like, you know, it's just, it's a different world. And so I did not have access to literature or websites or things like that. And the first person that I even really leaned into was a woman. I was shocked that a woman was even talking about money. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, oh, and her book was called Broke Millennial. And I was like, that's me. That is <laughs> who I am. And so I understood some of the things she was saying. But even still, it was just like, we come from very two very different dynamics, right? And so in the book, I say like, this is our seat at the table mm-hmm. where we can have these conversations and I can explain it to you the way we're talking, just like right now mm-hmm. on the couch. And you can understand like, oh, she's talking about this is like a pizza. Like, okay, this makes sense. Whereas we have, you know, really big, if you turn on, um, CNN or things we are talking about like the Dow Jones and the NASDAQ. And I'm like, okay, well, let me explain this to you like a supermarket. Mm-hmm. Like, this is what this is. When you walk in, you're picking out stocks, it's like picking out groceries. When you do an index fund, it's like picking out an aisle, right? So that is like, oh, that makes sense. So I really wanted to write this book for 25 my, myself, right? So people who were like, okay. And so my former students whom I love, mm-hmm. whenever they pick it up, they're like, oh, like, I wish you could have taught us this. I wish you could mm-hmm. like, and so that is life-changing for me because they're still so young, right? They're mm-hmm. 22, 23. And I'm just like, that's the book I wanted. And my brothers as well, they are the reason I became a teacher. They are also one of the reasons I became, you know, cause they are young black men. And I remember my youngest brother, he came home he was like, my teacher doesn't like me. She said, I'm, I'm never going to be anything. And I was like, oh, whoa, okay, right? And so I was like, I'm going to become the teacher for people who look at my brother. So I'm going to write this book for people. Wow. So that's what this book meant to me. And I really, really, and I fought so hard for the cover. I fought so hard for the title because my publishers, which they're great, but they wanted the, buy, the bottom line, right? Like, oh, we want to make sure when this is on the, the Target shelf or the Barnes and Noble shelf, people want to pick it up. And I don't know if they're going to want to pick up like a book with a black girl and like big hair. And I'm like, well, that's what we're going to do. So they said that in, in like words where like, they don't know, like, well, you're not really famous. Who's going to want to do? I'm like, well, let's give it a try. <laughs> let's see what happens. Right. Wow. And so the cover is like a majority of everyone's favorite thing. And I'm like, yeah, because it's me in the laundry because my mom used to drag my brothers and I, we didn't have an in unit washer dryer. So every Saturday we'd go with our quarters and we'd stay in that laundry all day into everybody's laundry. And I'm like, I have trauma when it comes to laundry. <laughs> and honestly, one of the first things I like when I was like, okay, when I pivoted into tech and had a little more money, I was like, I'm buying a washer dryer. Like, because sorry, mom, I'm so, like, I cannot, You're I cannot. Yeah. And so it was so important. And when she saw the cover, she could not stop laughing. She was like, Oh, you're at a laundromat, are you? Like, yeah. <laughs> In the cart. It's- my Saturdays as a child. So it was really important for me to really show up authentically and talk about money authentically and really be able to relate to people who have no idea what they're doing and really mm-hmm. want to know the first step. Like, what is my first step? That's why first first chapter is budgeting. That's great. Oh, we love budgeting. <laughs> yeah. We love it. I, I love it. I love, sure. I will. Okay. You I will, will get are. there. I will love You're it. starting yeah. today. Yeah. Today, yeah. yes. Okay, so what's the number one thing you would want high schoolers, so we're going to merge yeah. all your worlds together, yeah. that they should know about money before they turn 18? Nice. I love that question. I really, really want high schoolers to know and understand that money is a tool that goes beyond spending, right? 
when you can make your money work for you, and that's why I'm always like, stock market means my money's working. Like I don't have to work and my money's working. As long as you can make your money work for you, hmm. you are 10 steps ahead of a lot of other people, right? So you just need to understand, because like I said, I was like, I work, I make money, I work, I make money, I work, I make money, I spend, I spend that's it. Like that's, that's right. the cycle. The and cycle. I want them to understand that, that money is so much more, that money is access. And people always say money doesn't buy happiness, but money pays for my therapy. That makes me happy. Money pays for my gym membership. Ooh. That makes me happy. Money buys me pizza. Pizza makes me really happy, <laughs> right? So we really, really, really need to understand that money gives you access. It is a tool. And when we use it the right way, we right. live the life that we we truly want and desire for ourselves. How do I say this? Not to put Katrina on blast, wow. but oh, credit go. score. Okay. How important is credit score? And how can it be improved? <clears throat> okay. All right. All right. We got this. So your credit score is really important when it comes to a lot of different financial decisions that you are going to try to make in your future, right? So if you, I know a lot of times people are saying, even when you're going to rent, they're checking your credit because they want to make sure like the mm -hmm. rent is coming, right? So if you're going to try to rent an apartment, if you're going to try to buy a home, if you're going to open a new credit card, I've had health insurance check my credit. I'm like, I don't. I don't know what that's about. I've had, um, whatchamacallit, the utilities, they check your credit. So every little piece of thing that you're trying to do as an adult is going, they're going to check your credit. They're going to do like a soft check to make sure you're, you're, you know, not, you're not just trying to pull a fast one. And so what it really is important when it comes to credit is understanding that it's five pieces that make up that credit score. It's not just one thing. And each piece has a different, like a different percentage weight on it. Right. Mm -hmm. So the biggest, biggest, biggest piece is paying your, your bills on time. Katrina, I'm gotten better. Okay. Okay. So that's 35%, <laughs> right? So payment history is 35%. <laughs> and Except for the student loan, but that's okay. Right. <laughs> Okay, but we'll we're get in there. the on-ramp, so you're still okay. So you're still, still okay. okay. Still you're okay. still okay, right? So 35% is going to be your payment history. Then they're going to look at your credit utilization. So they want to see how you're using the credit you already have. And mm -hmm. what's important to understand is they look at your total credit that you have available, right? So if you have three credit uh, cards that have 15,000 total, right? So 555, if you max out one credit card... That, that's not good, but they're like, oh, she still has 10,000 out of the five, 15,000 mm -hmm. left. I don't want you maxing out no cards though, <laughs> right? But you want to keep that in mind because they check your credit utilization once, once a month. So every month your credit score is going to change a bit based off of what your balances are on your credit, your credit cards. So I always say try to pay your credit cards off before that statement closes because that's when they snitch on you. That's what I say, right? So that's yeah. when they <laughs> tell you, that's when they say like, oh, you know, they have a balance of 500, whereas last month they had a zero balance or last month they had a $200 balance, right? So your credit score is going to take a little dip, but you're saying, oh, you're using a little more credit than you, you know, than you mm. were last month. So credit utilization is really, really big. Another one that we don't always have a lot of control over is length of credit. That mm. one is 10%. And so I say, I'm not old enough to have 25 years of credit. I'm just, it's just not possible. But a really good way, right, if we are planning on having children mm. is to put them on as an authorized user, right? So if you oh. have a niece or a nephew or anything like that where they're really young, you can sit them down now and talk to them and say, hey, we're going to put you on as an authorized user so that you're building credit from now so that when you're 18, wow. when yeah. you're 25, and they look at your credit, they're like, oh, they've been building credit since they were 10 years old. I didn't know that when I was 10. My parents didn't know that. So my first, which is so ridiculous, my first line of credit 
was my first student loan in when I was oh. 17. It's okay. We're starting today. I know. Yes. And that's okay. It's okay. I that's was just why so, you wrote the book. This is why you wrote your book. Yes. I was so shocked. I'm like, this? This yeah. one? Like, wow. Right. So my student loans were my first line of credit. It was the first money that I was loaned. Yeah. Um, so, and for most people, it's probably going to be either when they first opened that credit card in college at 18 mm-hmm. or when they first got that student loan. Or right. they got it from Macy's, Katrina. That yes. was mine. Yes. Yeah. Macy's. Victoria's Secret was another big. But it's done though. I closed it. So All right. that's, Congratulations. Not, that's not a good thing though. Right? Oh, wait, yeah, yeah. So it depends. It really depends. And I always say, again, we lean in on what we can financially and emotionally handle. So some people they're like, oh yeah, I pay this off and I could leave the card open. I could put it in the freezer. I could do whatever. And we're all good. But some people are like, if this card is open, I'm going to use it. Right. So if that's how you're feeling, close that would it. would be Katrina. Yeah. Close it. Yeah. Because okay. yes, your, your credit score might take a little ding because you're closing one of your oldest lines right. of credit. Right. But if you know emotionally and mentally, you're like, <laughs> yes, I'm going to swipe this card <laughs> here. Yeah. Let's, it's best to, to, and that's why personal finance is so personal, right? Because yeah. I might be able to do one thing. You might not be able to do one thing, right. but we can both make two different decisions and be okay yeah. and be fine. So it is okay. Okay. You close can it. you take care of us forever? Yeah. Is this I can try. <laughs> I can try. Right. I'm trying to get to millionaire. I'm like, let's, yeah. Come on, y'all. I'll take care of you. Yeah, but you can too, right? You are also a future millionaire. I really, I really believe that. <laughs> oh, oh my goodness. Yes. Thank you. Yeah. Katrina's heart uh, just but skimmed. we have to start today. We yeah. have to right. start today. Okay. <laughs> okay, and we're going to put in that work. And we're going to start our Roth IRA, our high okay. yield savings. Yes. I can and do that. We're going we're gonna to be good. We're going to be good. I believe <laughs> in you. I can do that. I believe in you. I have your numbers. I'm going to text back every six months. Like, oh hey. my gosh, please. <laughs> Hold her accountable. <laughs> Melissa, yes. so other than your book, by the way, go and get it. Yes. So this is why I'm broke. Yes. Okay. Save yourself. All right. Get ahead <laughs> in life. Don't be like us. Yes. And waiting until the last minute. And, you know, we want to make the best decisions moving forward. Right. Where else can people find you? And just, you know, I know I can't get enough of you. Oh, thank you. Yeah. I'm such a fan of you, like fangirling, so trying to stay calm. Um, yeah, so I'm on all socials all over the place, uh, but not not the scammer TikTok. I'm going <laughs> to, but now that we've talked about it, like it's going to pop up on my thing. Oh, um, yeah. I am Millennial in Debt on all platforms, millennialindebt.com. So yeah, and you're just going to see my, my face pop up everywhere. Thank you so much for being here Thank today. Thank you for having We me. appreciate you so much. You. And I think we should have Melissa come back in six months. And see where I am. And, yeah, see where we are. Yeah. And oh hold God. people accountable. Yes. Oh my gosh. Okay, let's do <laughs> it. Like, no pressure. No let's pressure. Do it. Maybe I need the pressure. I work better under pressure. Okay. She does. Okay. She does not understand like... Deadline? What? Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. Pressure. She needs last minute... Okay, things are going to fall apart. Everything's sinking. Ah, so we need to get sinking. a sinking fund. Right? Yes, there we go. To make sure you don't say there she needs go. a sinking fund. I got fund. it. I got it. <laughs> okay. No, I would love to come back and definitely like hold you accountable. Thank oh. you so much. Yes, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Of course.